This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. From Fox News, it's The Campaign with Brett Baer. With several states reporting record-breaking daily increases in coronavirus cases over the weekend, the Trump administration and Republican leadership discussing another coronavirus stimulus bill and also how to get kids back to school. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said the Senate's proposal would include funding to ensure schools reopen, liability protection for various businesses and institutions, increased funds for contact tracing, and expanded COVID-19 testing. President Trump told Chris Wallace over the weekend on Fox News Sunday that he would consider not signing the Senate GOP coronavirus stimulus bill if it did not include a payroll tax cut, a provision that would help employers. Coronavirus looks to be the main voting issue come November as the school year is fast approaching as well. A lot of uncertainty. Former Vice President Joe Biden recently seized the opportunity to release his own proposal for reopening schools amid the pandemic. President Trump and former Vice President Biden have nearly 100 days to prove they are the person most qualified to turn things around, either stay in the White House or get into the White House again. With a look at the campaign trail, here's correspondent Peter Ducey. On Tuesday in Delaware, Biden is bringing a $775 billion taxpayer dollar proposal that would send checks and tax breaks to people who have been professional caregivers and informal caregivers of elderly people and of children who have resources that are running thin after months of COVID lockdowns. And the Biden campaign is trying hard to distinguish Biden's ideas with Trump's. Here's the presumptive Democratic nominee on MSNBC Monday night. Families are bereft. People are so worried about being able to see their grandmoms and grandpops for fear that they may get the COVID. I mean, this is, I, I don't understand it. He has absolutely zero sense of empathy. The Biden campaign stresses that Biden has personal experience as an informal caregiver since he was once a single parent and cared for his own aging parents. And the campaign sums up today's announcement like this, quote, Biden believes that if we truly want to reward work in this country, we have to ease the financial burden of care that families are carrying. And we have to elevate the compensation, benefits, training and education opportunities for certification and dignity of caregiving workers and educators. This $775 billion plan is on top of the $700 billion he wants to set aside to buy American goods and services and the $2 trillion he wants to spend to give the country a full green makeover. So in three weeks, that's more than $3 trillion of new federal spending. Today's program would be paid for by removing some real estate tax exemptions and raising taxes on anybody making more than $400,000 a year. In Newcastle, Delaware, Peter Ducey, Fox News. Peter, thanks. We'll start there with our panel, national editor of the Cook Political Report, Amy Walter, Fox News correspondent Peter Ducey, who we just heard from, now in studio, and Fox News politics editor 
Chris Steyerwalt. Okay, Amy, a lot happening over the weekend. Obviously, our poll out suggests that coronavirus is almost two to one, the issue that people care about more than the economy. That's where we are today. We have a long way to go before November 3rd. It's hard to see how anything breaks through if the coronavirus is still seen by Americans as being sort of either out of control or not contained enough to make them feel safe. The economy cannot get back, even if you open everything, say the schools are open and stores are open, if people don't feel safe. And as somebody who you know, recently went on an airplane for the first time since March, it is a very odd feeling. It's surreal. Through. I've been on it's a couple. Surreal, it's surreal. Right? You go yeah. through these airports. It's the middle of the summer and there is no one there. I was at Dulles and there were three flights listed on the United Airlines board. Three. There's usually 500 flights. So that's not because the planes aren't open. Some people are scared to fly on them. So you can't have an economic recovery without people feeling safe, period. Which is why a lot of people say the president has decided to get back in the coronavirus task force game, the briefing uh, likely starting Tuesday, and the president will lead it. And remember, Chris, that uh, the last time, after some time, there was criticism that he was hurting himself by leading these briefings. Now it seems like they've reanalyzed and decided, no, he needs to be out there every day talking about coronavirus. I don't know. I think I think you may be giving this administration a lot of credit there. Um, they stopped having the briefing shortly after the president had his historic debacle about injecting disinfectants into lungs and sun and, and putting UV light inside people um, that sort of nailed down. The criticism that a lot of people had of those briefings, including some of the president's biggest supporters, Wall Street Journal editorial page and others had said, you're really doing a lot more harm than good here, both in terms of instilling confidence in people in the virus, but also in your own presidential reelection futures. This has to stop. And then that sort of delivered the exclamation point at the end of it. And they wrapped it up. I don't know why they think it's going to be better this time. There isn't particularly evidence that it would be better, but there is evidence that they have to do something to demonstrate to voters that they are being serious about this. And they're being careful about it. They're being earnest about it. Well, you know, and before I guess that, this is the only idea they've got. Before that moment with the injection and the whole clarification of Clorox and all of that, his approval ratings actually were pretty high. If you track where he stops giving coronavirus task force briefing uh, briefings, it does go down. I'm not saying it's it's one to one to that, uh, but somebody is. Well, would but the the reason that he stopped giving the briefings was that they were going poorly. So it would make sense that there would be a decline at that time, right? One would think. Uh, Peter Ducey, you've been on the trail. You've been talking to Joe Biden. Well, not really, but you've been there. <laughs> trying to. You've been trying, <laughs> you've been trying. trying to. Um, where is this campaign? Are they in the sense that they're kind of sprinting, coasting to November, or are they... What, where, where's their head? Riding the speed limit. Yeah. Yeah. Through Delaware and Pennsylvania, and that is it. I mean, in the last uh, couple months... With the exception of a closed press trip to Houston, we have only seen him in Pennsylvania and in Delaware. And the campaign basically takes a week 
to figure out exactly what they want him to say for like 20 minutes. And then he goes out and he sticks to the script and he walks off and that's that. We're There's gonna get... not been any impromptu questions like here or there. Uh, there was one event about a month ago, three weeks ago, where he did take a handful. Uh, the campaign sent him out with a list of questioners. Uh, our Doug McElway was not on the list but managed to get a question in. Uh, but beyond that, no. And his Secret Service detail sees us over in the corner. They know that we are uh, clean and they let us holler at him. You know, hey, come over. Do you have time just for one? Uh, and he apparently never has any time, even though he does just have the one in-person event a week. And he's usually only about, a, at the most, a two-hour drive away from home, but usually about 20 minutes, including the Wednesday event. Yeah. It is stark, the difference between taking questions, Amy. But this president, uh, you can say whatever you say about the answers and whether you like them or not or whether they're just rambling or however you want to characterize them or if they're great in your mind. But he answers them. You know, he takes the questions. He's taken more questions than any president, maybe not in a formal setting, but in a, uh, as, as president. But in the contrast to Joe Biden, it is pretty stark. Yes, that is indeed true. Although I bet if you went and you gave a sort of truth serum to Republicans, and maybe actually you didn't have to give them that much truth serum, just told them <laughs> this was a private conversation, they would say, God, I wish that the president would be as disciplined as Joe Biden in terms of having very clear having a very clear message every day, driving that message every day. You're the president of the United States. You can drive whatever message you want nonstop. And instead of it being focused and it being concise and on the issues that matter most to voters, as you pointed out, it often goes all over the place and it gets him in more trouble. And the thing is, if you're going to drive a campaign as this campaign, uh, the Trump campaign seems to want to do as a choice between candidates. They don't want it to necessarily be a referendum on Trump's handling of these past few months, but instead really a choice between Donald Trump, who's going to help bring America and make America great again, and Joe Biden, who's going to lead us into a state of anarchy and, you know, total horribleness. Um, You have to be able to, if you're going to do that, You have to be able to get out of the spotlight. You have to give your opponent a chance to make those mistakes, to let the press focus on them. If you're filling the spotlight constantly with new chum, well, that's where the press is going to spend most of its time. Um, And finally, I do think what's going to be very important, though, is the very first debate. That is going to carry so much weight. The good news, if you are the Trump campaign, is that Biden could come into this thing. He's rusty, as you know, we know he hasn't been out on the campaign trail. He hasn't been doing the back and forth with reporters. He could really fumble this. The bad news, though, is that the president and many around him continue to treat Joe Biden and mock Joe Biden as somebody who is barely there mentally and that if he's if if Joe Biden basically steps up on stage and doesn't drool all over himself for two hours, he's basically going to be okay. Yeah, I mean a little drool would be fine, but um, <laughs> no. But you're right. I said that to Chris Wallace, and and by saying the incompetence thing and questioning his ability to put two sentences together, as the president said in that interview, 
Peter, you are setting the bar pretty low for Joe Biden to show up and do what he did in the debates in the primary, which is right. maybe stumble through, but get through. But you remember uh, the primary debates, uh, for the most part, were all happening and then Joe Biden would go and come in like fourth or fifth in a primary. The ones that uh, I guess uh, it, it was kind of already decided by the time that it was just him and Bernie on the stage. But with the exception of the South Carolina debate, he would go up there and he's in a state where people have been going to his events and they've been paying very close attention to him for months. And he got lower ratings than Sanders Warren, uh, Buttigieg, Klobuchar in New Hampshire. And so... If they are going to use that as the high watermark, that might not be good for yeah. them. Chris, I guess what I'm trying to do is touch base here so that we don't get trapped into the 2016 place that we were, which was, look at this guy. He's throwing up the shiny thing every day, and we're all taking it, and and it's sucking up all the oxygen in the room. But this is ridiculous. He just said John McCain. I like the ones who weren't captured. You know, he just said this, and suddenly we get to election day, and people go... Yeah. Well, he's answering questions, and it's interesting, and it's different. Now, obviously, it's a whole different ballgame with him as president and him dealing with a crisis and a pandemic. But there is a little of that now, isn't there? You know, uh, Trump's slogan to African-American voters in 2016 was, what do you have to lose? And I don't know how many uh, African-American voters felt that way, um, about 8 percent, according to exit polls. But for a lot of voters, uh, regardless of race, who were suburbanites, middle class, uh, blue collar, upper Midwest, the a uh, lot of parts of the traditional Republican coalition, and a lot of those swing voters, people said, yeah, you know what? I don't like Hillary Clinton. Let's take a chance on this guy. Uh, I think I know what I'm going to get from Hillary Clinton. Donald Trump is unpredictable. He's pretty wild, but maybe he can achieve some stuff that other people couldn't achieve. The challenge that Trump faces in re-election is that that just won't work. The shiny object stuff doesn't work, right? Because he, let's take the perfect example that you see in our poll. His efforts to push on wedge issues about Confederate soldiers, about law and order, about the silent majority invoking 1968 did him some good, right? He uh, recouped losses with voters over 65. His numbers among white evangelicals and white with whites without college degrees are higher, are better. He's got the base back together and he's still down eight. And that eight points, that difference there between him and Biden constitutes voters who are not willing to take a chance on Trump. So he, he, he doesn't have the ability to fight asymmetrically the way he did in 2016. We'll hear from our panel after this. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Amy, I think, you know, Chris describes the situation with the federal authorities going into cities and trying to prevent some of these protests that turn into riots as a wedge issue. But for some of the people in those places, I mean, it is it is a security issue that is pretty powerful when it comes to politics. Well, you know, like everything now, it seems um, where you stand on an issue is less dependent on 
literally where you sit. Like, are you in those regions? Are you uh, in one of those cities? Than where you are politically and whether you identify yourself as somebody who's supportive of Trump or somebody who really dislikes him. And, you know, what we're finding is that for voters, even those who are in the quote unquote suburbs, those suburbs that the president said, you know, Joe Biden will destroy if he's elected president, those suburbs, especially in that inner ring or right outside the major metropolitan areas, those have become much more diverse um, in terms of ethnicity. They are not as as white as they once were. Many of those neighborhoods were created by white flight from the cities. They are now much more about, uh, actually they're more expensive. The cities are the, the place where people actually wanna go back to, but the suburbs are not just these little you know, oases for white voters who are trying to move away from things that they felt were upending their way of life, whether it was the schools or what they saw as high crime. So I think Chris's point was a good one. When he does focus on these issues, it brings back a lot of that base that was softening on him because the focus was just so intense on the sort of fumbling efforts on the pandemic, when it comes back to, oh, these are the reasons. That's right, that's why we vote for Trump. Oh, that's right, that's why we can't take a risk voting for Democrats. That's good news for him, but if you uh, need to bring some swing voters in there, and right now I don't know that this is the message to bring them back. Yeah, but when you get a an update on Ruth Bader Ginsburg's health, and everybody says she's doing great, and everyone's saying fantastic. But what it does in just the story that she's yeah. fighting cancer, and it just brings up the Supreme Court, not that that seat, but just the Supreme Court overall, and how important that is, and it was in 2016. And that's another issue that's just like you're talking about. Like, wait, that's oh yeah, that's why that's important. Yeah, I mean, I think. The idea when we think about, well, what could happen between now and Election Day that could really alter the course of this campaign, a, a Supreme Court opening and a, and a all out Supreme Court fight in October before presidential election year would add a degree of uncertainty that I don't oh think gosh. any of us are comfortable. Like nuclear uh, uncertainty. Exactly. Like nuclear. Like think of what Kavanaugh was and in some ways, it really just re-energized both bases, right? I think it helped, Kavanaugh helped Republicans hold on to the Senate, but I also think it helped Democrats in their success in these suburban areas make gains there. Yeah. Chris? No, I think uh, the received wisdom has been correct for probably the past 20 years that courts, uh, federal courts is an issue, have uh, favored Republicans. There's more voter intensity over there. Uh, there has been a decades-long project among conservatives uh, that really has reached its fullest flowering under Trump, where you have essentially the, the Federalist Society, um, a, a group that was considered uh, marginal two decades ago, getting to have basically veto authority over who will sit on the federal bench. Uh, it's been huge. Democrats would argue that the, that things have shifted now for a couple of reasons, that if there was a vacancy 
from uh, if if um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg had to step down because of her cancer treatments or something like that, if there was a vacancy of a left seat, that there is so much anger over uh the Kavanaugh appointment over the blockade of Merrick Garland's appointment that Democrats are now fired up on this issue in a way that they weren't before, number one. And number two, it's hard to convince voters after three years of Donald Trump bragging about how many judges he picked, it's hard to convince voters also that at the same time that the judiciary is full of uh, radical liberals. So uh, the ground may be moving on that one a little bit. Mm-hmm. We're getting ready for uh, former Vice President Biden's choice on VP. Uh, he is having an appearance on television with Hillary Clinton, uh, which is quite something around this time. Um, <laughs> Peter, what's your, your inside skinny on um, the campaign? You know, I, I think and have thought for months uh, that one of the most interesting candidates would be Atlanta's mayor, Bottoms, because when there was a really crowded field, she was like the first elected woman uh, to go and uh, be a surrogate for him at a debate in a spin room. He never, he's the, actually the only candidate who never uh, spun for himself, uh, but it worked for him. Uh, but she was there with him. And recently, her city, Atlanta, has been dealing with horrible racial tensions. And she also has the coronavirus right now. And if those are going to be the two issues, aside from the economy, COVID and police violence, she is probably somebody that they are giving a much closer look to if they weren't already uh, a couple months ago when she was one of the first ones to go to bat for him. It's interesting. Amy, um, I tried to book the Atlanta mayor and uh, was told through back channels that uh, her schedule is being controlled by the Biden folks. <laughs> so that's um, that's kind of an interesting little side note. But uh, she doesn't have a, a lot of experience. I mean, it's Atlanta mayor, it's city council, it's... Um, right. It's not a lot of history. And if you're looking at somebody like Joe Biden, who people may want to say, wait, what's next? Um, I don't know if, if she gets that uh, gets to that bar. I think that's exactly right. If you're Joe Biden and you're up eight, nine, whatever many points right now, you are working so hard to stay so controlled in every other part of your campaign, only going out uh, for events every week or so. Why would you do anything to try and shake up this race? You want to keep it kind of as boring and as steady as you possibly can. But you know, I'm going to interrupt you because it, yeah. I know uh, Chris does not talk sports with Dana that much. But <laughs> if you're talking about sports and you've got a team that's up big and then they start yeah. playing prevent defense and they are no longer, you know, the team that they were being aggressive, trying to get touchdowns. Oh, yeah. They're instead of they're instead trying to protect the lead. Suddenly it changes the dynamic. And I wonder, I just wonder whether that's going to happen. Ask the San Francisco 49ers what happens uh, when you try to sit on a lead. It doesn't work. Oh, so <laughs> sad clown for 49 I don't, I don't even know what to say to that. But mm. I will say that. To that point, I think, meaning I agree with Peter, like taking a risk on somebody that's new. They may be young. They may be exciting in some ways because they're different. And and you look willing to sort of take a uh, the next generation to the White House with you. But at the same time, what you're saying to swing voters is, 
gosh, should a 78-year-old guy really be bringing somebody with this little national, international executive experience to this big of a job? I think that's why Kamala Harris keeps coming up as such an obvious choice in the sense that it is a quote-unquote safe pick because of her tenure as a senator, statewide elected office in California, but also because it's not as much of a sitting on the lead boring thing, like holding the ball and, Mm -hmm. you know, just running it for the next three quarters. Um, You know, you are saying to the Democratic base, I hear you. We need more women. We need more women of color. I'm proud to have this person by my side. You're essentially anointing this woman as the next Democratic nominee for president. Um, That does inject more interesting dynamic into this than, say, picking um, someone who would be, I don't know, a white guy. Right, which mm-hmm. he's not going to do. Well, he's but, not going to do, yeah. So, yeah. Peter, did you buy the reporting that he there was concern in the campaign that uh, he didn't want to get upstaged out, out, or outshone or whatever, or whatever? Yeah, I 100% believe that because now that he is the nominee, uh, I, I think he just wants to put the cherry on top of 50 years in D.C. as president, and he wants to be in charge. And he knows what it's like to be vice president for almost a decade. Uh, he obviously spent a lot of time thinking about the the big job, and so I completely buy that. Um, and, and so does Kamala outshine him? I guess. I, well, I, I don't know if she does, but if you're Biden, also right now he's got a full Secret Service detail again, which he did not have for like three years after leaving the Naval Observatory. Uh, and his events are very tightly controlled, even though there's like nobody there. Um, but so it, and he says that he gets briefings all day, every day. Uh, so it's almost like he is acting as though he is the president already. And I don't know how anybody, even if there was somebody with the personality to outshine him, I don't know how you just wedge your way in there and suddenly elbow him to the side. I don't I don't know even if somebody wanted to or somebody tried to. I don't know how that works. Yeah, yeah. Chris, um last word on the VP pick. I think that means not you Elizabeth Warren, not you. Um the kind of vice president Joe Biden wants presumably is the kind of vice president he was. Somebody who behind closed doors will uh, make their opinion known and uh that will uh, uh, ride herd on questions when asked, uh, you know, uh, bail out a uh, sheriff or uh, a rock withdrawer or whatever it was that Obama over time asked him to do. Susan but, Rice. Oh, she, uh, Susan Rice. I, she's in the list. She's on the list. You know, the, the thing about Susan Rice is it's good to troll your adversary, right? And Susan, I'm picking Susan Rice because of her connections to Benghazi and because of her connections to the national security stuff would trigger the many Republicans would be triggered and upset about Susan Rice. And there would be a lot of advantage in that for Biden. On the other hand, she ends up not being a super impressive person. I think if you want to trigger, I think you take Tammy Duckworth and let her go be your attack dog because she's really good at it. She's not afraid to take him on. She 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 uh, absolutely jukes 
uh, opponents all the time. She's got a really impressive record. I don't know. Uh, after the uh, after the Mount Rushmore speech, she kind of dropped the ball a little bit on that uh, post analysis. She, she certainly won no admirers on the right, but she will trigger them. She will get a response, and she will generate activity there. But I think what Biden is really concerned about would be, if I were Biden, what I would be concerned about, somebody like Elizabeth Warren, who is not a good team player, who is not well-liked, who doesn't have a lot, who doesn't have a lot of party loyalty or team spirit, that you wouldn't want somebody who would constantly be trying to nudge you in some direction you don't want to, you want, you don't want to be. Well, that's where we are. That's the state of the race. We're on our way to the uh, conventions. I don't even know what they're going to look like. There may only be like (laughs) five people there. It's going to be me, Martha, and a couple of camera people. I'll be there. Oh, yeah, and Peter, too. All with masks. <laughs> um, but listen, thank you so much. Here's a bit of campaign trivia. On July 11, 1952, the Republican National Convention nominated California Senator Richard Nixon to be General Dwight D. Eisenhower's vice president. In his acceptance of the vice presidential nomination, Nixon pledged he would wage a fighting campaign to not only win the White House, but the House and the Senate as well. Republicans went on to do just that, winning the White House as well as a majority in the House and the Senate. Nixon himself saved his political career later that year with what later became known as the Checkers speech after a controversy. That'll do it for this week. You can hear more of this series at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Make sure to leave a rating and review. We want to hear from you. For Amy, Peter, and Chris, I'm Brett Baer. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch.